0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church.
1: Hello and good morning, everybody. I cannot even begin to express the joy that I have to be standing here um, and and, uh, with the honor of leading leading in worship today and especially just happy to be here amongst other believers. As great as my couch is and as great as church in my pajamas is, it uh, doesn't compare. Absolutely does not compare. <clears throat> so however you're joining us today, again, I just want to say, say welcome and, and say that you have been prayed for over today, that the, that the Spirit will be working in you. So if you can, uh, I'll encourage you, if you're here or if you're in your living room, I just want to encourage you to stand and just sing and worship our God with us today. And again, just a reminder, if you are here in person, it looks like everybody's already doing this, but you'll have to be wearing your mask if you're going to be singing t- with us today.
2: Good morning, welcome here. As uh, we come here this morning, I'm sure many of us have had different joys and worries throughout the week and we come here to be reminded of who we belong to. That's the most important thing is that we belong to a loving father, that we get our identity with him and that we're reminded of that identity as we get together. And as a church, we want to invite other people to join our family so that they can enjoy the goodness of God as well. Father, over the last weeks, we have been reminded that uh, sin isn't just something that affects part of our lives, that without you, we are complete slaves to sin, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. And we're so thankful, Lord, that in your grace, you make us aware of that reality, that we can't save ourselves but that you can save us. And we're so thankful today as we move into the next part of Romans 3 to be learning about your good news for us through Jesus Christ. We ask for your blessing as we worship you through song, as we listen to your word, and ask that you open our hearts to receive from you today the truth that can change our perspective in daily living and how the way we respond to people who don't yet know you, Lord, and for ourselves just to live in the grace that you've given us. We thank you so much for who you are. We ask that you help us to know you more and grow in our love of each other as we grow in our love of you. Thank you so much for this morning. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now, we're going to be blessed by listening to the scripture uh, from Shelley Cumming.
3: Good morning, church family. My name is Shelley Cumming, and I have the privilege of sharing the scripture passage for today. It's found in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness from god apart from the law has been made known which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ to all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by christ jesus god presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God bless the reading of his word.
1: I know I can speak from from personal experience and where I am at, and I know I feel like a lot of people might be in the same boat where if you were to describe your faith, maybe a word like drought or desert might, might come to mind. Um, it's, uh, we were created as humans, and especially as in the image of Christ, to be in, in fellowship and in communion with one another and with the Holy Spirit. And I know it's, it's been difficult. Um, and I've always found that one of the best ways to build faith for myself because it is to is to profess truths about God with my mouth. To say these things aloud that I, I will read and I will believe and I will internalize. But there's something magic I think that happens when, when you can just profess these things with your mouth. And so I have some truths about God that I, I would invite you if, you if you feel so led to, um, to respond to wherever you are. And if it's in your heart, that's okay, because we, <laughs> we luckily worship a God who looks at our heart and not just what we say with our mouths. So if this is what you feel in your heart, if these are truths that are in your heart about our, our Lord, I'd ask you to, to say them with me. Lord, thank you that it is true that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. I believe in a sovereign God who sent his son to die for me. I believe in a God of miracles. I believe in a God who is unchanging. I believe that you have saved me. I change it up on you guys a little bit. Curveball. You. Amen. Your faithfulness never ends. Lord, we are never out of your reach, and you will never stop reaching for us. And your love never fails. You're perfect in all of your ways. Lord, thank you for your love that never fails. Holy Father, we thank you that all those things that we have just sung, all the things that we have just said are are true of you. Father, that your faithfulness never ends, that your goodness to us knows no bounds. Lord, and that we are always, always within your reach, no matter how far away we may feel from you. Father, we thank you for the salvation of, that we can experience through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard of uh, the proposed bill uh, C-7. And actually, we just have a video uh, response to that that we're gonna watch together.
4: My early experience with depression could best be described by saying, the world lost its color. Depression does that. I was 14 years old when it started. I didn't understand what was happening to me and that made it really hard. I began to self-harm, and then I struggled with anorexia, then bulimia. I was 15 when I first tried to kill myself, and I attempted suicide seven times in the years that followed. It was on the seventh attempt that I got the closest, and it was then that I realized that in wanting to end my suffering, I might actually do something final. My name is Garifaya Malousis, And I'm speaking about my mental health struggles because I'm scared that doctors could soon be able to end the lives of people suffering with mental illness, people like me. To be honest, if medically assisted suicide had been available when I was in university, I might have used it to end my suffering as soon as I could. Some politicians talk about safeguards that exist to protect vulnerable people from accessing medically assisted death but I have 10 years of experience pretending to be okay, and no, the proposed safeguards will not protect or save me. You know, some people living with mental illness will thank you for making it possible for them to die, but that's the problem. Because in two years, in four years, that same person will not thank you, and that's why I'm here. I'm the future version of myself who survived to tell you this. In moments of crisis, you're not planning for the future. And so when I self-harmed and when I attempted suicide, I wasn't thinking about what it would mean for me to have scars everywhere, right? I wasn't planning on living that long. And so now I have to deal with the consequences that come with that, because there's only so long you can wear long sleeves in Canada. I mean, it does get warm eventually. So I'm still here, but it's a struggle, and life is like that. There are still highs and lows, and the things I've considered and tried do come back to me. That's why this scares me. Because had someone been willing to assist my suicide during one of those lows, I know the life I've lived would not have happened. I didn't try to kill myself because I wanted to die. I tried to kill myself as a last ditch effort to end my suffering. If this legislation passes, my mental illness would qualify me for medically assisted death and put me at risk. And when I'm in a headspace like that, I'm already fighting internally. I can't be fighting to keep myself safe on all fronts. I need someone to be my advocate in those times. That's what suicide prevention is for. Death would have been a way out, but with the right interventions and relationships, I was able to find a way forward. So I want to say right now, to whoever needs to hear this, death doesn't have to be the answer. It takes work, it takes time, it takes others, and it's complicated. But there is hope. Now, I'm excited about my future. I'm preparing to marry my best friend, and I can't wait for us to start our lives together. Still, the struggles with mental health remain. I'm sharing my story because I'm not the only one who has more to live for. There are people in your life who do too. As someone who struggles with mental illness, I don't need someone to tell me how to die. I need someone to tell me to stay.
0: Amen. That was a courageous young woman to record her story and put it out to the world. And uh, as um, she said, I don't need someone to tell me how to die. I need someone to tell me to stay. And uh, as you are aware of, this past Thursday evening, our parliament voted to pass Bill C-7 on assisted dying. It uh, goes now to the Senate before it is going to become law eventually. And uh, the one pause that was afforded us in this fight Against uh, this is that uh, for the sake of the mentally ill or the those that are facing mental health challenges There has been put in place a study period of two years It will not apply to them for two years and in the coming year a panel is going to be formed to uh, study Recommendations that will be brought forth to the medical community before anyone with mental health challenges would apply or be acceptable And so to my way of thinking as Christians we have a window still of advocating for those that have a hard time advocating for themselves and this is a vulnerable sector of society and uh, this woman uh, her story uh, demonstrates that so well she didn't try to kill herself because she wanted to die she wanted to end her suffering and so as God's people we're in, we should be involved. We should be involved in the lives of those who are facing challenges of all kinds. We should be their advocates. We should walk through the shadows with them. We should be the ones who provide alternatives, who help them see what's out there. And we should be the ones to remind them of God, the God who loves them, the God who created and give them, gave them life. And uh, not be like Job's friends who, who tried to figure it all out and end up blaming him nor to be like his wife who came to the end of her wit's end and said, just curse God and die. I feel as though that is the narrative that our community is giving people. It's just, end your life. It's not the solution that God gives people. And so with this in mind, would you just pray with me as we begin to shift gears and look at God's word this morning. Oh God, our Father, we live in incredible times uh, we, we live in incredible times when we see before our very eyes in recent years the unraveling of things that it took to build our country. The unraveling of basic and, and foundational pillars of our society built on Judeo-Christian values. And Lord, we see them crumbling. And Father, the sanctity of human life is being threatened so much. And we pray... Oh, Father, that you might give holy pause to the kinds of thinking that our parliamentarians are, are having. We pray that the, the parliament, the senate, and lawmakers, Lord, will be given a holy pause to reconsider, to be informed of testimony like we saw this morning, and to be aware of the fragility oh God of many people that face mental health challenges and we pray that father instead of thinking about how to end life we would think about how to invest more in making it better and more livable and uh, walking with people father our oh Lord we pray all around the world there are so many human rights issues happening oh God And we recognize that as your people, we are called upon to walk with those that are facing, whether it's in our country with with government like this matter, or whether it's somewhere else in the world. Father, we pray, uh, continue to make us an aware people, an informed people, and a people that are bold enough to take a stand for what is right, oh God. Would you help us to do it in a gracious and loving way, though? And would you make us, Lord, uh, the kind of people that honor your name. And so, Lord, even now, as we shift gears to look at your word, we pray, uh, open our eyes, Lord. We need you, Holy Spirit, to to come and to make real the things of your word, the Bible, and of Jesus, your Son. And so do that now for your glory. Amen. (laughs) You know, there's an important balance to keep when we think about Matters of society and the parliament—it's important balance to uh, to maintain on social political matters, and and we can fall off either side of the fence, can't we? On the one side of the fence, we could we could slip into the passive, easy armchair attitude become the cynics and the critics sitting in our chairs like spectators, lofting our little Scud missiles at uh, CBC or some other institution in Canada that we just don't agree with. And that's one way of responding in this day and age as we live in Canada. And on the other side of the fence we could fall off on, we could become aggressive political activists and think that somehow Jesus' kingdom is going to come through means and measures like that. When he said clearly it was not going to be that way, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world, and so we cannot expect that, but we could fall off either side of the fence. If you haven't noticed yet, we're living at a time in Canada that is called post-Christian, which means that, that now the majority of the people in our society, in our country, uh, do not embrace Christian worldview biblical values. It's not embraced or believed in. That's where we're living at in time and space. And so history shows us, and as we looked at the Bible passage in Romans chapter 1 uh, a few weeks back, history and Romans 1 show us that when this happens to a society, when this happens to a culture, as is happening before our very eyes, there is a downward spiral when people let go of the, the values that our lives are to be built on, there's a downward spiral. And what it leads to is that eventually God gives a people and a society over to that which they so desperately wanted to exchange him for. And so we're seeing it before our very eyes in Canada that, that God is slowly giving over our country to those things that, that our country is exchanging God and His truth for and we're desperately wanting it as a society. And so God's saying, okay, you can have that. But it comes with its fruit. It comes with its problems. It comes with its devastation. It comes with, eventually, its judgment and that's the time we're living in in Canada. But we're not special folks because there have been several of God's people down through the ages that have been living in exactly the same kind of culture and under the same kinds of governments. And so as Christians, we find ourselves in a government under a government that is less sympathetic to our views now I want to clarify it is not hostile to our views we do not have a government that is hostile to our Christian worldview and values we have a government that is less sympathetic to it now we have individuals in our country and in government sometimes that are hostile but as a as a whole we are not finding a government that is hostile to us. And if we respond as though they are, we really bring about a bad name for ourselves. So many people from the past think about Israel in exile in Babylon. Think about that. What was that like? And what did God command those people to do? Israel in exile in Babylon. Or Paul writing to the Christians in Rome. Think about what it was like to live under Roman domination. The governments in charge might be increasingly unsympathetic, but we need to be more aware of moral issues that are increasingly unsympathetic to our our views, and we need to be more aware of how they're being politicized, moral issues, ethical issues being politicized, and therefore we should be informed and we should raise our voice and speak out as the conscience of society. But we must do it in such a truth tone way that is that is reflective of our Savior Jesus we must do it in such an important way of speaking the truth but it's so so important in love otherwise we will be the ones that will be viewed as hostile and and we might end up sending the wrong message that we don't want to send because the truth without the tone changes the message and so The message that the world could receive and I think from some believing Christians are already the world is already receiving this message and that is if God so loved the world like you like to quote if God so loved the world how come you guys hate it so much I fear that's what many Christians are communicating Christ's kingdom will not come by political means and I am so glad That Jesus gave us not only his life, but his teaching. So that he not only showed us in his life, but he taught us through his life how to put it all together. And he told us in a simplistic way he told us that life is put together and it is also repaired after it's broken. From the inside out. From the inside out. From the inner and spiritual to the outer and material. Which intuitively tells us that there are no external solutions, no political solutions to the greatest need that humanity has, which is spiritual and inner. You change the heart of a human being and you will change their destiny and their outcome and their life. And that is what Paul the Apostle is really teaching in an extensive way throughout the book of Romans. He is teaching us that we, we see transformation take place from the inner to the outer. And in order for us to understand this message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ is saying about humanity that he created, is that first of all, you better understand that, that there has... Been some bad news that you'll have to grapple with before you can get to the good news. Last week, Doug made three points. Pastor Doug made three points about the bad side of the good news. He said that we are sinners and we're going to be judged. He said that if nothing changes, we're going to be found guilty. And he said that if we don't have a Savior, we can't save ourselves. That's three points of the bad side. Of the good news, and we need to see in this that God is an absolutely unbiased, fair, impartial judge. We need to see that God is just, just as as chapter uh, three talks about earlier. Let every man be proved a liar, but God is going to be just. God is true. God is fair. And so he's not saying that some of us are going to be found judged judged, and the rest of us will go through. He's saying all of us will be judged. He has taken three chapters in his book to clarify that the religious people and the non-religious people, everybody is without excuse. He's gone extensively into this, creating this case that's saying God has a case against humanity and all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God, and all will be held accountable to God, and all stand condemned. Now, that, that's all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20. And then today, as we open up our word that Shelley read to us, the, the, the first words are, but now. I think I have that actually on here somewhere. But now, or it says, but God here. And, and uh, this is where, but, but now a righteousness from God is revealed. And that's the scripture that I want to look at this morning. You know, some people say that the word but is their favorite word in all of scripture, the word but. And there's so many but gods uh, in scripture. In fact, some people also would say that, that every believing person, every person that follows Jesus, has in their story a but God story. That here, here they were going down this road, but God did something. Let me just share with you just briefly some of the incredible but God passages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Do you remember what was happening when that happened? But God remembered Noah. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph to his brothers, he said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jonah, I love his story. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, but you, O Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit. <laughs> Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. He gave the increase. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has seized you except what has come to man, but God, he'll give you the way of escape. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. Boy, did we go on? There's so many, aren't there? But God. In the scripture we're looking at today. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. This is the turning point of the first section of Romans. This is the big turning point, friends. And before we look further into it, one thing that I must point out about the Greek language, and I call it, it's called Koine Greek. It's not the Greek that's spoken in Greece today. It's the Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in. One of the things you need to understand is that the word righteousness and the word justice are the same word. It's synonymous. So it is the dikaiosune theu in Greek, It's the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Same difference. If you speak Spanish, you'll know that la justicia de Dios is the righteousness of God or it's the justice of God. It's the same word. And when they come to translating the Bible, they have to decide, do we put in justice here or do we put in righteousness here? You need to know that as we open up the Scriptures this this morning. Now, I want to tell you a little story about a very important figure before I proceed to get into the Scripture. And he's someone that you'll, you'll know from history. His name is Martin Luther. And, of course, we associate with him naturally, back in chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous will live by faith. That's where we kind of get thinking about Martin Luther. We think of justification by faith. We think of Martin Luther. But I want you to, and that's true, But I want you to know that before that was ever on his mind, there was one phrase in Scripture, especially in Romans and in Galatians, that he absolutely was tormented by. And the phrase was, the righteousness of God. Or, you translate it, the justice of God. This phrase tormented Martin Luther. Why? You see, his struggle... As a priest and as a monk, his struggle was not with individual sins. His struggle with, was with, singular, sin. Okay? Do you see the difference between sin and sins? You see, what he struggled with was not the sins that he might commit or that others commit. He struggled with the very nature of humanity. Sin. Sin. That's what he struggled with. And he realized that there was no way that he could be righteous before God because of the nature that he had within him. And what he, when he read passages like Romans 3.21, he read that when he read the righteousness of God he saw in his mind a measuring stick by which God would go to him, measure him, and see him fall short of the glory of God, and then be judged accordingly. He saw no way around it. And he pondered this for months. He knew that as a monk he was impeccably obedient to the monastic order. And yet he knew also intuitively that he was indisposed, predisposed to a corrupted nature and heart. And as try as hard as he could, he knew this dilemma. That if he were to die any evening, he would stand guilty before a holy God. So slowly the light began to dawn on Martin Luther as he studied, prayed, read, sought the Lord in Scripture and he came to see that what Paul means in chapter 3 verse 21 by the righteousness of God was not actually a measuring stick by which God would measure each one of us and see us lacking, but rather a gift from God. That, that the righteousness of God was not the measuring stick of God, it was the gift that he would give to every person who would put faith in his Son, the perfect one who lived up to the standard of righteousness. And as he pondered it night and day, he finally came to this conviction and this realization that it was not a measuring stick, but a gift. Finally, his eyes were opened. He saw all of the religious trappings of the Roman Catholic Church at the time as as deceitful, deceptive, enslaving death. Death all the indulgences being sold, the holy relics, the penance, deceiving people who were seeking, truly seeking after God. And so finally, on October the 31st, 1517, All Saints Day, the eve of All Saints Day in Wittenberg, Germany, when Martin Luther could bear it no more, Just as all of the holy trinkets and the relics of the past were being set out for display to make more money for the church on the backs of the poor and give them false assurances of a right standing with God, Luther fired his shot across the bow, warning the church of his protest. He went to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed to the wall of that door his 95 Theses. And he made his protest. And thus began the Protestant Reformation. What he exposed in those 95 documents, in those 95 statements, what he exposed more than anything else was the corrupt business of the church selling grace. Selling grace. That's what was wrong. When in the word of God, it was meant to be a free gift. Already purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. In full. I want to say four things this morning about the righteousness of God. (laughs) And the first thing we want to say about the righteousness of God is that it is apparent only in Jesus Christ, and it is apart from the law. Paul writes in 21 that it's been made manifest. The word manifest means to appear. It's the same word that John uses in his first chapter of his gospel. When the John the Baptist comes and he's baptizing, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it says in verse 31 John the Baptist says, I came baptizing, I came baptizing with water so that he could be made manifest, that he could be revealed, that he could appear. And so the first thing that I want you to know about the righteousness of God is that it is not a thing. It is not an it. The righteousness of God is not a code. It's not a standard. The righteousness of God is not a measurement. The righteousness of God is a person. Jesus that's the righteousness of God. And Jesus, as the righteousness of God, was revealed as John the Baptist was out in the wilderness baptizing. He was revealed to Israel and then to the world, and he began his public ministry. And so John, or sorry, Paul can stand on that doctrine. He can say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, that Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God, and righteousness he has become righteousness for us on a human level the only way of removing boasting because Paul says that let him who boasts boast in the Lord on a human level the only way of removing boasting is to demonstrate that no matter how much one lives according to the law they still fall short but then of course even in that way of thinking we could boast because I didn't fall as far short as you did. (laughs) And that's the way we humans think. And so how is it that God is going to remove boasting? There's a way. And this is a misunderstanding I think many Christians have even. Because what Paul says in this verse is that there's been a righteousness from God revealed, and it is apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the law in that way. It's apart from the law. It's not based on the law of Moses. Let me read to you a long quote from a commentary named by Arkent Hughes. He says, While it is indeed true that all fall short of the glory of God, it is not true that human righteousness ever comes close to this special righteousness apart from the law. Specifically, this righteousness is not a legal righteousness, but rather a status of righteousness before God that comes to us as a gift. It is infinitely beyond human righteousness. It is a radical righteousness to match our radical righteousness corruption, end of quote. So if you want to know what God thinks, if you really want to know what God thinks of your righteousness, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64 and read verse 6, and you'll see that God says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's our righteousness, folks. That's not our sins. (laughs) That's, That's the best that we can offer God, it's called filthy rags. And in fact, I can't even translate to you the real meaning of the word filthy rags. You can look it up yourself. That's what God thinks of your righteousness. Any righteousness that's going to be on the measuring stick of the law of Moses, anything that we bring to God that's going to try to measure up, that's what God thinks of it. It's filthy rags. It's all tainted with motive and pride and and, and attitude and self-serving and and so it's impossible for us to please God apart from the righteousness, the radical righteousness. So the point is that we must avoid any kind of a top-up view of righteousness. And, and uh, anything that thinks that in our own merit we can gain righteousness, sort of 75% or 25%. A well-known preacher, which I will rename nameless at this point, a well-known preacher from the last uh, century uh, made the mistake of pulling out a yardstick in the pulpit. Brought out this yardstick and he, he described some people, they have 75% righteousness. And, and, and they need, they need, but they fall short. And then there's other people, they only have 25% righteousness. Well, they fall short. And then he'd pull out Romans 3 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's wrong with that, folks? Tell me. What's wrong with that illustration? It's suggesting that there's room for boasting. It's suggesting that some people have 75%. You just need 25% grace to get into the kingdom. Some people have 25%. You need 75 to get into the kingdom. What's going on here? Human righteousness is being exalted. Gospel is no longer the leveler of all people. No, we come with some merit before God. Martin Luther could throw up at that idea. You see, the point I'm making, Paul's making, is that we're, we're talking about a different league of righteousness. It's not the same righteousness. I've got to tell you a story. And this came to me this week, and it's going to sound like a really strange illustration, but I think it works. So throughout my high school years, my instrument was the trombone. And... Uh, one year, my band teacher asked me to go and compete in a trombone competition in the next town. And so I went, and when I got there, I was actually quite relieved to see that of our whole district, there was only three, three guys that were in the trombone competition. I thought, this is pretty good, I've got a chance here. But when the first guy got up and played the song, I panicked because I didn't recognize the song. And then by the time the second guy got up to play the song, I panicked even more because I did recognize the song. It was the one that I practiced, except he was playing it about three times as fast as I had practiced it. I had no no recourse except to get up and play my song played the trombone. At the end of the whole thing, the adjudicator brought us all to the front, sat us in the front, and he began to talk through the song. Well, here's where this, and the author, or the uh, composer meant this, and you should do this, and you did well on that, and so on. And then he came to the point, I didn't remember anything he said, by the way, the adjudicator. <laughs> I didn't remember one thing he said. But then he came time to giving out the ribbons, and so he, he, he called this one guy up, and he gave him Whatever the color of first place ribbon was and then he called the second guy up and he gave him the second ribbon But he didn't call anybody else up Now I don't know how you do it, but how do you go to a competition with three people and not get third place? But it happened to me the only conclusion that I could come to was that I wasn't even in the same league as the guys that played it three times as fast if we would use that illustration to talk about the goodness or righteousness that we could achieve according to the law of Moses compared to the righteousness of God seen in Jesus Christ it would be like me coming to that trombone competition with the wrong song with a clarinet it's not even in the same league And so, Martin Luther, when he's writing his commentary on Romans, says this. The object of this whole epistle, he says, is to destroy all wisdom and works of the flesh, no matter how important these may appear in our eyes or those of others, and no matter how sincere and earnest we might be in their use. Do you see what God is doing through the gospel, through the good news? He's, he's destroying all works, all righteousness of man. He's just saying, come to Jesus. Let's move on to the next point. The second thing I want to say about the righteousness of God is it is it applied to those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. It's... Through faith in Christ. Obviously, if the righteousness of God or a right relationship with God appears only in God's Son, it follows that anybody who does not put their faith in that Son is yet in their sin still. So God offers himself as the solution to humanity's greatest need to be right with their Creator. And Martin Luther felt so compelled on this front that he actually put in his translation the word alone beside faith, faith alone, sola fide in Latin. If a person approaches God seeking to be justified and made right with any other means besides faith in Jesus, they will be rejected. Have you ever applied, had the experience of applying for uh, something like a school application or application for a grant right now, our government is offering applications for businesses or citizens that are are, are needing some help. Can you imagine uh, there's there's an important factor here two things important number one you're going to have to get the right application form, and number two you're going to have to send it to the right department okay and These are two mistakes that you could make. You could could actually send the right application to the wrong department, or you could send the wrong application to the right department. That's what the point of faith and Christ is all about. Paul says that it's to all who believe. Anybody who applies is going to be accepted, all who believe. But faith is the application. And Christ is the office that you must send it to. If you are trying to apply with your own merit, trusting in yourself, instead of putting faith in Jesus, you will be rejected. Any other means of trust will be rejected. Only Jesus Christ will be acceptable to God. For those of us who put our trust in him. You see, God does not grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. He grades on Christ's cross applied to your account. And so that's the only basis of acceptance. Thirdly, righteousness of God alone is accomplished through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word for justify, are justified by his grace, verse 24, is the same root word as the word righteousness and justice that we referred to earlier. Means to be declared righteous in God's sight. And in fact, we could make up a word here in English. I'll make it up just to demonstrate the point. Verse 24 could be translated being righteous freely. Righteous means made righteous. Being righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's free, there's no charge, it's by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, and it is through the redemption. The redemption word is a slave market word. Paul borrowed it from this slave market, this idea of, of somebody paying a ransom price and purchasing a slave out of the slave market. And what Paul is saying is, is that, that we're released from our guilt, we're released from our judgment of that guilt, and we're released from the slavery itself to sin. And we're set free to serve a new master. And this set freeness to serve Jesus is that he's now a loving master. He's a good God. As we sang the first song, he's a good father. And, and the first step in this liberation from sin, this, this word is called justification. That's the purchase price being paid and us being set free and being declared now free and righteous in God's sight. And then finally, I want to say that the righteousness of God is able to justify sinners through the blood atonement of Christ. Would you read with me, just follow with me, verses 25 and 26. It says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now there's a lot in this two verses. Just let's think about what it teaches about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is alone able to justify, but how does God justify sinners? in a way that is consistent with his, his justice and his holiness? The answer Paul gives is he does it by offering Jesus as a propitiation, a payment, a atoning sacrifice by his blood, Christ's blood. And the word that is used for a propitiation here is identified with the cover called the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant that is found in the Old Testament. Now, if you go back with me to the Old Testament into the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, you'll read about this box that God had Israel make, and in it were carried the Ten Commandments and some manna from the wilderness, and, and on the top of the box was what was called a mercy seat, And on that mercy seat, the blood of sacrifices was sprinkled from bulls and goats and sheep. And all those sacrificial animals that were given pre-Christ all pointed forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would take away the sin of the world for a once-for-all sacrifice. But the interesting thing was that not only was that place above the mercy seat where the blood was spilled. So that's the place where the, the wrath of God upon sin was appeased and where fellowship with God could be attained because sin had been dealt with. The only thing removing you and I from God is sin. So now sin is dealt with, the blood has been shed, and now we can have fellowship with God. But at that time, it was only one priest once a year in the very holy of holies. And now what Paul is teaching is, is that Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, has come, and he has become the mercy seat. His blood was spilled and his, the wrath of God was dealt with so that we sinners who put our faith in Jesus can now have fellowship with a holy God. But not only that, there's more. In, in Exodus 25 that same mercy seat, God tells Moses that that is also the place where he would meet with his people. Again, back in that day, it was one priest representing all the people going in once a year. But now in Jesus Christ, who has been our high priest, we all who come to him by faith, can meet with God, can have fellowship with God. Not an angry God, a God of love. And so, there's more. In this scripture, it says that God's forbearance in his forbearance, he passed over former sins. Again, what are we we talking about? Paul is alluding to, To the fact that the Passover Doug referred to it earlier in the announcements talking about this meal the Seder meal the Passover was this incredible event remember the story how Israel were, were slaves in Egypt and God had sent plague after plague after plague and the Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let Israel go God was insistent on freeing his people from slavery even as he is today And the last plague was the firstborn of every Egyptian household being struck. But every Israelite home that took a yearling lamb and slaughtered that lamb as a sacrifice and took its blood and put it on the doorposts of their homes... That night when the angel of death came from God and saw the blood on the doorpost, the angel passed over those homes and did not bring death to those homes. And the next morning there was wailing in all of Egypt. But every Hebrew home was safe. Pharaoh got up the next morning and said, Go. And the Israelites were delivered from slavery. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God has passed over not only our sins, if we have put our faith in Jesus, but he has passed over all former sins of the blood that bulls and goats and and, and lambs were given for because there was a once-for-all sacrifice given in Jesus. You know, there's a foolish statement out there, folks. I want you to know it. Maybe you've heard this foolish statement. Apparently, I can't can't find the exact source, but it was apparently stated by a, a famous person at some point, and it has been repeated ever since. And the foolish statement goes like this. Well, of course God will forgive me. It's God's job to forgive. Have you ever heard that? It's God's job to forgive. You know what? There's going to be many, there's going to be many people in eternity not forgiven. It is not God's job to forgive. That's a lie. If anything, we see in what Paul has been developing, if anything that we know God's job is, it's to be fair and just. That's what God's job is. And the way that God is just to let you and I as sinners be forgiven of that sin and given eternal life is because he already got the price paid at the cross in full by the Lamb of God, Jesus, by free grace. And there was a a double transfer that took place because he, he takes my sin upon himself and I receive his righteousness. Incredible. That's incredible grace. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, conclude the service in a moment and uh, I want to tell you one story before I do so and then I'll conclude with prayer. And it's a story taken from the ancient Greek poet Homer, who wrote 800 years before Christ. In his work called Iliad, he tells the mythological story of a Trojan warrior named Hector. And this Trojan warrior Hector was going out to fight a battle one day against Achilles and the invading Greeks. And as he was leaving his home for battle, he wanted to hold his little son, a little baby. I think I can't pronounce his name. The baby's, the son's name was Ascianix. He wanted to hold him in his arms as he bid him farewell. But Hector's armor so frightened this little child that he drew back into his nurse's arms and would not go to his own father. Finally, Hector took off his bronze helmet and laid it on a a table. And then the boy recognized his father. And Hector took his son into his arms and his son discovered the father of love behind that hard, cold armor. I think it reflects, to me, what Paul has been doing in presenting God in the first three chapters of Romans. He has been presenting God as a holy, righteous judge. And he argues that all humanity is without excuse and deserving of God's wrath. And perhaps you, like the little boy have recoiled at this description of God as we've been going through the first three chapters. You're recoiling at this God of sin and judgment and wrath. And you're thinking, that's not the way I grew up learning about God. God is love. God is nice. God is... Maybe you didn't think that was the God of the Bible, what Paul's been saying for the first three chapters. But I hope that today and in coming days... As the good side of the good news is unpacked even further, I hope that you will begin to see the price that God was willing to pay so that you could be His child, so that you could see His loving father side and not His wrathful judgment side. I hope that you are going to have your eyes opened from the darkness of wrath into the light of God's love because that's how He thinks of you you're his created image you are he's you are loved by him and i hope that you will walk into the sunshine of his love it's as though it's as though in chapters three four paul is taking off the armor of god to show us the heart of god the loving father god who comes to our rescue who himself offers us his righteousness because ours was was falling short. I hope you get to know that God, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, now as we pause, I just ask you, Lord, in this holy moment to to do your work, Father. Um, Holy Spirit that um, this message will have landed on not only just our minds that we might understand what is taking place in the scripture here but Lord that it might land upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might have conviction that we fall so far short of being your image bearers and that it also would, would, would be clear that the incredible love that sent your son Jesus to take our place on the cross, to bear our shame and guilt so that we could be his righteousness before you. Lord, may that also be be understood in the heart. And anyone, Lord, that comes under the hearing of this message, Lord, I pray that they would just in this moment, if they haven't already, that they would in this moment say, "I, I believe this. I believe that I am unrighteous, that the best that I could offer God is going to fall short of what God requires. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve forgiveness. But I am going to put my trust in Jesus Christ and what he did. I don't know him well yet. I have hardly heard about him. But I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you might have many people come to you, many people turn to you and see that behind the armor of your justice is a loving Father. We pray it in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And now go in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Go into the life that God has waiting for you out there. Go into the world that God has waiting for you. Knowing that he's already there in your future self, waiting for you to join him. In the business that he has already lined up for you, in the relationships that he's already aligned with you, in the hard things that you may need to do this week. Go, trusting in his righteousness to keep you on the path that he's marked out for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Go in peace.